to the fourth Head and Neck um, audio podcast. This one's on the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck. (coughs) Now, in the somatic nervous system, the motor supply of the somatic muscle has its cell bodies located in the motor nuclei of the cranial nerves or in the anterior horn cells of the spinal cord with the nerves entering the motor end plates directly. In the autonomic nervous system as a whole, however, the motor part of the ANS, the autonomic nervous system, is concerned with the innervation of cardiac and smooth muscle and the glands of one sort or another, but where the pathway from the CNS to the target organ is interrupted by a synapse with an intervening ganglion. So the system is a little bit different. And that effectively divides the autonomic nervous system into a preganglionic and a postganglionic pathway. And that's an important thing to consider because these become particularly specific in the head and neck. The preganglionic cell bodies are therefore always part of the central nervous system. If they're sympathetic, they're located in the thoracolumbar outflow part of the spinal cord in the lateral horn cells, or the so-called intermediolateral cell column. If they're the parasympathetic nervous system, they occur in certain cranial nerve nuclei and in the lateral horn cells of the sacral segments 2, S2, S3 and S4. And so therefore they're part of a craniosacral outflow. So the separation is into neuronal types with preganglionic and postganglionic elements, and specific ganglia in the head and neck, and the separation of sympathetic outflow as thoracolumbar and parasympathetic outflow as craniosacral. The postganglionic cell bodies are in the ganglia of the peripheral nervous system. If sympathetic, the ganglia are either in the sympathetic trunk, and they're then called the paravertebral ganglia, or in other ganglia which are variably called the collateral ganglia. If it's part of the parasympathetic system, then the ganglia are collectively referred to as terminal ganglia because they're located usually within the walls of the viscous or tissue target, or as in the case of certain discrete named head and neck ganglia, the four that we know of are the ciliary, the submandibular, the pterygopalatine, and the otic ganglion. So basically what I'm trying to do is to just set up the system and explain how it works. The division is into the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems, as we said, and I'll repeat or at least reinforce some of the points that I'm trying to make through this podcast. The parasympathetic system within the head and neck coalesces around four large mixed ganglia. The function of the sympathetic nervous system in the head and neck is to control largely the free capillary sphincters, so it's a vasomotor function, but it also has piloerector function, and it's also in the pseudomotor, S-U-D-O-motor, which means secretomotor, 
control of the sweat glands. So that's the role of the sympathetic system. It's often a question I ask in exams. What do the sympathetics do in the head and neck? And so we answer that. They're vasomotor, pilomotor, and sweat gland pseudomotor. The sympathetic nervous system is distributed via the paravertebral ganglia, and specifically as part of the sympathetic chain via the superior, middle, and inferior cervical ganglia. Sympathetic activity is derived specifically from the thoracolumbar outflow, as I've said, and it arises typically in segments T1 uh, to L2 and is derived specifically from the cells of the intermediolateral cell column, which is a group of cells located between the sensory and motor horns of the spinal cord. So we've got the exact level, we've got the exact cell, if we think of an axial breakdown or structure of the spinal cord. The parasympathetic nervous system is part of the craniosacral outflow, as we've already said, and that includes centres which are coalesced around the third cranial nerve, the ocular motor nerve, in the midbrain, as well as around the seventh nerve nuclei, the ninth nerve, and the tenth nerve. A view of the sympathetic chain uh, can be found on our um, Anatopod Plus site, but in brief, in a cross-section of the spinal cord, the intermediolateral cell column contributes fibres into the ventral spinal nerve, which then typically leave the nerve to enter one of the paravertebral ganglia. Now, as they get into the ganglia, they are myelinated, and these fibres that are myelinated, preganglionic fibres, uh, are referred to as white rami communicans because they're supposed to look a little white. Now they may or may not necessarily synapse in the ganglion at that level but they can just as equally use the ganglion as a relay station without synapsing. Once however they do synapse these postganglionic sympathetic fibres are no longer myelinated and they're therefore known <coughs> as grey rami communicans or communicantes as plural. The possibility is, of course, that these fibres can ultimately move um, lower down or higher up, depending upon their target tissue, where they ultimately synapse. They may, of course, also pass for long distances as preganglionic fibres to perhaps get to the preaortic ganglia, ganglia like the celiac or the aorto-renal ganglia, before um, uh, synapsing. And in other circumstances, of course, they may directly synapse into the adrenal medulla, which effectively just behaves like a giant ganglion within the system, and where epinephrine or norepinephrine is then directly released. So that's the basic structure of what happens with the sympathetic system, running round from the intermediolateral cell column down in the ventral spinal nerve, and then running through a paravertebral ganglion where it may or may not synapse at that level or higher or lower down, or into a preaortic ganglion, or into the adrenal medulla. That's basically how the system particularly runs. Now, in the normal circumstance, the preganglionic fibre of the parasympathetic nervous system is typically quite long, with a very short postganglionic fibre, because that's a terminal ganglion, usually within the substance of a soft tissue, or a target organ, or a viscous. And so, therefore... Those little postganglionic fibres are often known as intramural fibres within the substance of the viscous or target tissue. 
So typically the preganglionic parasympathetic fibre is actually quite long and then it synapses within the wall of the viscous or its target tissue. So it leads to a very short so-called terminal or intramural nerve fibre, postganglionic fibre. That is to say that the postganglionic parasympathetic system is therefore typically short. And the reverse is the case with the sympathetic nervous system where the preganglionic fibre is quite long. And this long preganglionic fibre is most typically referred to as a splanchnic nerve. It's often another question I'll ask in an exam, what is a splanchnic nerve? But it's typically a prolonged preganglionic fibre. It may be sympathetic or parasympathetic. Examples of these splanchnic nerves exist uh, in particular in the thorax as the greater splanchnic nerve. Typically that's T5 to 9, but that can vary a little bit. The lesser splanchnic nerve, T10 to 11, and the least T12, which then synapse in the relevant celiac and aorticorenal preaortic ganglia respectively. So again, as I continue to summarise, but in summary, there are only several options for the sympathetic nervous fibres here after having reached a sympathetic trunk ganglion. They can synapse with cell bodies in a trunk ganglion, either in the one entered or by running up or down to an adjacent trunk ganglion within the sympathetic chain. They can leave the trunk ganglion, of course, without synapsing, only to synapse in a collateral ganglion. They could pass to the suprarenal medulla and synapse there with the medulla functioning effectively as a specialised ganglion. As there's no sympathetic nervous system in the cervical region, or for that matter from the lower lumbar and sacral parts of the cord outflow, then those preganglionic fibres destined to run with cervical nerves have to ascend in the sympathetic trunk to the cervical ganglia, or for lower lumbar and sacral regions, descend down to the lower lumbar and sacral ganglia. And that obviously means that you've got a system where there isn't thoracolumbar outflow, but where there's sympathetic activity in the lumbosacral region or in the cervical region. And that's basically how it gets there. So we're just defining, if you like, the, uh, I would say, the, the basic structure or infrastructure of the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. The body in general is represented upright from the head to the perineum, albeit with some degree of overlap and some degree of variation. We're talking about a neural representation here. The upper limb, for example, is represented by the lateral horns of T1 to T6, but in many, in many T1 is limited, and in some it may extend as far as T10. So there is variability within the system. The sympathetic trunk extends alongside the vertebral column from the base of the skull to the coccyx, with in theory at least a ganglion per level for each spinal nerve, where the upper four unite to form the superior cervical ganglion, five and six unite as the middle ganglion, or middle cervical ganglion, and seven and eight fuse with the T1 ganglion as the so-called cervicothoracic or stellate ganglion. Now elsewhere there is therefore one ganglion less than the number of spinal nerves, such that there are 11 thoracic, 4 lumbar, and 4 sacral ganglia. And every spinal nerve receives, as we've said, a grey ramus, but the cervical lower lumbar and sacral nerves do not have white rami because there's no sympathetic outflow in those segments. They receive their preganglionic fibres from thoracolumbar grey rami by the fibres, as I've already said, having run up or down to the correct level.
basically. There is also, as I've said here, a collateral branch of the sympathetic system, which is an example of a splanchnic nerve in the thoracic, lumbar and sacral regions, but in the cervical region, these are actually called cardiac branches because of their direct involvement in the cardiac plexi. The lumbar splanchnics descend into the superior and the inferior hypogastric plexi, which are on each side joined by the visceral branches from all the pelvic sacral plexi. That's the sacral sympathetic splanchnics and pelvic parasympathetic splanchnic nerves. So these inferior hypogastric plexi are then basically mixed parasympathetic and sympathetic systems. And that ensures that the visceral plexi are mixed um, down to the celiac plexus, pelvic splanchnics down to the inferior hypogastric plexi. And these basically are mixed parasympathetic systems and sympathetic systems which hitchhike along with the relevant arteries. In the neck, the preganglionic sympathetic fibres ascend and descend as a discrete trunk from the upper thoracic ventral rami, as already stated really, towards the cervical ganglia. And that trunk, the sympathetic trunk, runs vertically anterior to the longus collie and the longus capitis muscles, but behind the carotid sheath on the ends of the transverse processes of the vertebrae. Inferiorly, the sympathetic chain lies medial to the vertebral artery, and on the left it's crossed anteriorly by the thoracic duct, and on the right by the arching ITA, inferior thyroid artery. Now, we've covered some of that in the root of the neck already. Although superiorly the trunk effectively ends in the superior cervical ganglion, it is continued on the surface of the internal carotid artery as what is called the internal carotid nerve, which is just a sympathetic little plexus on the artery. And the distribution by the cervical ganglia is to the head and neck and the upper limb with branches of the major arteries as the mechanism of distribution. If we're still continuing with the sympathetic system, we've got to talk about these ganglia a bit. Um, they're smallish prints to some extent. The superior cervical ganglion is relatively large, at around two and a half centimetres or an inch or so, lies on the longus capitis, typically opposite the second or third cervical vertebra. And it has a number of communicating branches, and these include specifically communicators to the ninth, tenth, and twelfth cranial nerves. So there is distribution of sympathetic function in the way we've described it for the head and neck through the glossopharyngeal, vagus and hypoglossal nerves. The second communication of the superior cervical ganglion is the grey ramus communicantes, typically to the upper four cervical ventral rami. And again, this is just a mechanism of sympathetic distribution within the territory of those upper rami to presacral uh, musculature. Um, and... There is, as I've said, the final branch, the internal carotid nerve. So we have some communicators with the superior cervical ganglion to the cranial nerves, to the cervical ventral rami via grey rami communicantes, and continuation on has a sympathetic plush little plexus, the internal carotid nerve. There are also some other branches from the superior cervical ganglion in the head and neck. There are laryngopharyngeal branches, and they contribute to a pharyngeal plexus. 
there is a, a plexus running along the external carotid, as well the so-called external carotid nerve could be called, running on that and uh, on the external carotid artery and its branches. So akin, if you like, to the homologue between an internal and an external carotid nerve. And they're also contributors to the superior cervical cardiac plexi, sometimes that's called a cardiac nerve, descending from the common carotid artery. On the left, that's part of the so-called superficial cardiac plexus. On the right, it descends into the chest. Usually, well, it can be either in front of or behind the subclavian artery, and this becomes part of the deep cardiac plexus, which is just a plexus over the bifurcation of the trachea. The Briefly, I would just mention here, although it's something discussed in another podcast on the thorax, but briefly about the, um, I would say, the cardiac plexi, that they're relatively ill-categorised, and they consist of various sympathetic and parasympathetic uh, components and afferent fibres, and they're divided typically into a superficial and a deep group. The branches are vasomotor to the coronary arteries, but they're also conducting to the sinoatrial node, both cardioinhibitory and cardioaccelerator, as well as the AV node and the bundle branches. And these are the coronary and cardiac branches, but there are bits that enter the lung root also as part of the pulmonary plexus, going to the bronchial musculature and the lung vasculature, including the bronchial arteries. For descriptive purposes, although we'll go into it another time, but uh, the superficial cardiac plexus is formed by the junction of the inferior cervical branch of the left vagus and the cardiac branch of the left cervical sympathetic ganglion in the way we've defined it. This part lies in front of the ligamentum arteriosum. It passes actually between the phrenic nerve in front and the vagus nerve in back, across the front of the aorta, usually as two discrete branches. The deep part of the cardiac plexus receives contributions from the right vagus, but also from the left vagus via its superficial cardiac branch, and a branch from each sympathetic fibres from the remaining five cervical sympathetic ganglia, that is the middle and inferior on the left, and all three ganglia on the right. So most of this is a contribution of right branches, sympathetic and parasympathetics, with some separation of the left inferior cardiac branch between that being superficial cardiac plexus as opposed to all that other group, <coughs> which are part of the deep cardiac plexus. So it's not particularly well characterised, but that's basically how it's formed. Um, there are also contributions, I should add, from the upper five or six thoracic ganglia, and that's typically on both sides. This deeper part of the plexus lies to the right-hand side of the ligamentum arteriosum. It's on the bifurcation of the trachea and the pulmonary trunk. It is interconnected with the pulmonary plexus. And these plexi include postganglionic sympathetic fibres from the cervical and thoracic ganglia and preganglionic cells from the vagus coming from the dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus. These vagal fibres relay directly into the cardiac wall. And there also are vagal afferents whose cell bodies are in the inferior vagal nuclei and which are concerned with cardiac reflexes. So it's not just an efferent system 
Pain fibres are also afferent and they'll run in with the sympathetic system and relay typically in the upper three cervical, upper two thoracic ganglia, mostly around the inferior cervical and upper T1. And this is part of the somatic variation of pain as well, also uh, where that will go as referred pain. So basically you've got the superior cervical ganglia and its connection to the superficial and deep cardiac plexi, but also a communication to individual cranial nerves, the internal carotid nerve, and the upper part of the ventral primary rami feeding the, the scalene musculature. There is a middle cervical ganglion, very difficult usually to find, uh, very small, lying on the inferior thyroid artery at about the level of the cricoid cartilage. It too has several particular branches, so it must have grey rami communicantes, which pass typically to the fifth and sixth cervical ventral rami. It has thyroid branches, part of an ITA or inferior thyroid artery plexus, which communicates with the recurrent laryngeal nerve and the external laryngeal nerve. There's kind of like a proprioceptive looping there. The middle cervical cardiac nerve comes out of this as well. It's a slender branch to the deep cardiac plexus, which is on the right-hand side, accompanies the superior cardiac or cervical cardiac nerve. There is also part of an anser subclavia in the, related to the middle cervical ganglion, and that loops as a slender branch around the subclavian artery to join the stellate ganglion, typically, not always. And that supplies the subclavian artery will send branches across to the relevant phrenic nerve. So basically, that's the middle cervical ganglion. There is also this combined, usually inferior cervical ganglion, combined with the first thoracic, the so-called cervicothoracic or stellate ganglion. And that may exist as either one or two parts, as I've said. It can represent the fused inferior cervical plus T1 and even sometimes T2 ganglia. And if it's separate, the inferior cervical ganglion is generally quite small, lying typically behind the common carotid artery with the vertebral artery anterior, uh, and it's near the 8th cervical ventral ramus. Vertebral artery is a bit medial. If the whole ganglion is combined as a stellate ganglion, it lies at the neck of the first rib, receiving a white ramus communicans from the first thoracic or ventral ramus. The branches, whether they're fused or not, will include, as we expect, grey rami communicantes, this kind of time from the 7th and 8th cervical ventral rami, the ansus subclavia connections, which I've already mentioned, uh, between the middle cervical ganglion and the um, stellate ganglion, communications with the vertebral plexus on the vertebral artery, and there is an inferior cervical cardiac nerve which runs here, which joins the deep cardiac plexus. The relevant sympathetic outflow for the head and neck is concerned with other functions beyond what I've mentioned, and the principal one there is pupillary dilatation, uh, which is opposed to the parasympathetic activity of pupilloconstriction, which is controlled by the ciliary ganglion, as well as the sympathetic output, uh, which is part of the system, which goes to the pterygopalatine ganglion via a combination of the parasympathetic activity, which is the greater petrosal nerve, combining with an offshoot of the sympathetic system on the internal carotid artery, specifically called the deep petrosal nerve. 
We'll come into this later in the assessment of the pterygopalatine ganglion. But each of these head and neck ganglia are a bit unique. They're all mixed in the sense that they have a sensory root, they may have a motor root, they have a sympathetic root, but their function is, of course, parasympathetic synapse. But they're relay stations for all of these other activities. And um, to uh, put it uh, in, in this particular way, what's unusual about the pterygopalatine ganglion is that the sympathetic system comes to join the parasympathetic system as definitive nerves. The sympathetic system is called the deep petrosal nerve. The parasympathetic system is called the greater petrosal nerve, part of the um, facial nerve. And the two combine together to form a, a common root, which will then relay through the pterygopalatine ganglion, where it's known as the, um, uh, basically, the uh, vidian nerve, V-I-D-I-A-N, or the nerve of the pterygoid canal, because it runs through the pterygoid canal. Now, of course, the job in the parasympathetic ganglia is only for parasympathetic um, synapse. But uh, sympathetic roots and sensory roots and motor roots use the ganglion as some form of relay station or a coordinated relay station. So there's some difference there in the sympathetic system. What's unusual here, just to repeat, is that the parasympathetic and the sympathetics actually combine as separate branches in the pterygopalatine fossa, where the parasympathetic fibres are, of course, the only ones which synapse, where the pterygopalatine ganglion is a relay station for autonomic activity for the glands and sinuses of the middle third of the face. The ganglia, ciliary, pterygopalatine, submedullar and otic, although their function is to synapse for PNS activity as parasympathetic nervous activity, they also, as I've said, are relay stations with sensory afferent roots and sympathetic function. And I'm describing them a little later in this podcast. The only other point I should include a little bit about um, is some comment about uh, sympathetic denervation within the head and neck, uh, the idea of Horner's uh, syndrome. Now, Horner's syndrome uh, was described by the Swiss Swiss, uh, ophthalmologist Johann Friedrich Horner. It is a combination of things, as we know, a slight constriction of the pupil which reacts to light and accommodation, in other words, a meiosis, a partial ptosis, which is a paralysis of the visceral part of the levator palpebrae superioris, that's the bit with sympathetic innovation, and a reduction of sweating and hydrosis on the forehead and head, unless it's above the superior cervical ganglion, when anhydrosis can actually be missing. So there are some variants in it. There is, I think, also an apparent enophthalmos as well. Uh, Less constant to rare features include, uh, on the affected side, sometimes facial flushing and arteriolar or venular dilatation, which can actually best be seen in the retina, and a transient lowering of intraocular pressure, even hemiatrophy of the face, and in congenital uh, uh, Horner's syndrome, the so-called iris heterochromia. Uh, there is a reference attached Horner's syndrome by Y.K. Kong from the Clinics of Experimental Optometry in 2007, not a bad 
article combining just a bit more information about uh, Horner's. The pathophysiology is that the sympathetic pathway to the eye is actually a three-neuron pathway. And uh, this is a bit more complex than we normally would go into, but we should go into it, and into the nature, obviously, uh, of the uh, pupillary reflex. The first-order neuronal fibres arise from the posterolateral hypothalamus, and they descend through the brainstem to terminate in the spinal cord at the ciliospinal centre, which is about C8 to T2. The second-order neuronal fibres, which are preganglionic, exit through the T1 nerve root, and they travel close to the lung apex through the paravertebral sympathetic chain and the stellate ganglion, and they terminate in the superior cervical ganglion. So tumours involving the upper lobe of the lung and thoracic outlet, the so-called Pancoast's tumour or Pancoast syndrome, can interrupt the pathway at this level because of their proximity to these structures. The third-order sympathetic fibres, which are the postganglionic, exit the ganglion, and they form a little plexus around the internal carotid artery. The plexus then ascends into the cavernous sinus. It runs a short course on the sixth cranial nerve and then follows the ophthalmic division of the trigeminal nerve, uh, that is V1, to the orbit, where they supply the iris dilator muscles and the smooth muscle fibres of the upper and lower lid. Vasomotor and sweat gland fibres to the face actually follow a different course after leaving the ganglion, that's the superior cervical ganglion, and they follow the external carotid artery, part of the external carotid nerve or external carotid plexus, to supply half of the face <coughs> on the same side. Uh, I think there was a study that said that in a case series of 450 patients with Horner's syndrome, um, 60% or so had an identifiable cause, of which about 13% had first-order neuronal central lesions, 44% second-order or preganglionic lesion, and 43% a third-order. So it's kind of like, um, uh, if you like, about a 60% cause being evident and uh, a bit of a, a kind of a third, a third, a third into or slightly more pre- and post-ganglionic damage uh, than CNS damage. In Horner's syndrome, with the meiosis, the pupil will actually dilate slowly over about 15 to 20 seconds, a little caveat, as the active midriatic action of sympathetic innervation is reduced. And so there is actually what's referred to as a dilation lag of the pupil, so it's a little bit more complicated. Concerning the partial ptosis and then ophthalmus, Muller's muscle comprises the smooth muscle fibres that aid in the elevation of the upper lid when the eye is open. And a similar but unnamed muscle in the lower lid is also supplied by sympathetic fibres. So there's this dual somatic and sympathetic supply. The loss of sympathetic supply to the eye does result in partial ptosis of the upper lid and a little elevation of the lower lid. And this causes a bit of narrowing of the palpable fissure, which kind of gives the illusion of enophthalmos. And concerning the anhydrosis, that occurs less often with postganglionic lesions because the postganglionic sweat gland fibres follow actually a separate path.
from the rest of the fibres that travel to the eye. There are, just to finish this off, a myriad of lesions which can lead uh, to Horner's syndrome. At the first order neurons, uh, there are problems, obviously, in the CNS, which can include basal meningitis or a basal skull tumour. It could include demyelinating disease, an arnold Chiari malformation, uh, or a pituitary tumour. Uh, Second-order lesions, which are the pregangnomic lesions, as I said, the main one that we talk about is Pancoast's tumour or syndrome. But there can be birth trauma, obviously, with injury to the lower brachial plexus, a cervical rib, an aneurysm or dissection of the aorta, the subclavian or common carotid artery. Central venous catheterization can do that, obviously, a trauma or surgical injury, part of a radical neck dissection, even a thyroidectomy. And the third-order neurone lesions uh, may include, uh, obviously, postganglionic elements that can include cluster or migraine headaches, so it can be an intermittent presentation, a carotico-cavernous fistula, herpes zoster or shingles, uh, that sort of thing. I wanted to add one other additional little thing, and that is the just to remind people about variations of the sympathetic outflow to the upper limb, uh, to be aware of the so-called nerve of Kuntz, K-U-N-T-Z. The second thoracic nerve is not generally regarded as contributory to the brachial plexus. However, an inconsistent intrathoracic ramus joining the second intercostal nerve to the ventral ramus of the first thoracic nerve, proximal to the point where the latter gives a large branch to the brachial plexus has been found by Kunz in 1927 and this has been found to carry sympathetic fibres to the upper limb without passing through the normal sympathetic trunk. So there are uh, alternate mechanisms by which the upper limb may receive its sympathetic activity and where a conventional sympathectomy may not work for let's say hyperhidrosis or for uh, variants of Raynaud's syndrome or perhaps for um, uh, persistent um, uh, reactive pain. So there are these additional circumstances where there, there may be uh, uh, problems with conventional upper limb sympathectomies. I want to get off the topic now and talk about the parasympathetic system and particularly focus on the four head and neck parasympathetic ganglia and the structure of this system. It has a particular structure which is relatively easy to understand. The system is visceral and not to the trunk, limbs, suprarenal glands or gonads. Preganglionic fibres of cranial origin originate in the Edinger Westphal oculomotor nucleus, the superior and inferior salivatory nuclei and the dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus. This will become clearer as we go through them. The postganglionic vagal fibres are located in the viscera, that's the heart, lungs and gut, and the postganglionic cells of the Edinger-Westphal nucleus. The salivatory nuclei end on the forehead and neck parasympathetic ganglia, respectively. Now, for completeness, the preganglionic fibres of sacral origin arise from the lateral horn cells, as we've already said, of S2, 3 and 4, constituting the pelvic splanchnic nerves, and entering the inferior hypogastric plexus, and they run up from the pelvic origins to the level of the splenic flexure. So that's basically the entire parasympathetic system of the body. 
The four small ganglia that we're interested in here are specifically distributed via the trigeminal nerve uh, to the glands of the orbit, the nose, the nasal region, the pharynx, the mouth, as well as to the sphincter pupillae and the ciliary muscle of the eyeball. And as stated before, postganglionic fibres of the sympathetic system and the trigeminal run through these ganglia, but without any specific connection with them, acting purely as coordinating relay stations. The ganglia, if you like, are very similar in structural plan, with each possessing a parasympathetic, a sympathetic and a sensory root. But each of these ganglia has unique little quirks, which we'll go into. Specifically, the parasympathetic root carries the preganglionic fibres from the relevant nucleus, and it represents the essential ganglionic function, which is glandular secretomotor, or I like the term pseudomotor, S-U-D-O-M-O-T-O-R. That's its job. So some textbooks refer to the parasympathetic root as the motor root, which I think causes confusion. The sympathetic root containing, uh, contains postganglionic fibres from the superior cervical ganglion, whose preganglionic fibres, as we've already said, line the lateral horn of T1 to 3. And the sensory root contains the cell bodies of the trigeminal ganglion. So let's try and clarify this a little bit more. But that's the basic entire structure of the parasympathetic system and its relevance for the head and neck ganglia. Now the basic structure for these ganglia can be remembered, in my view, in the simplest fashion by simply just recalling the target issues or target tissues for secretion. It's as simple as that. All you need to know is where the target tissues are and you can then follow backwards to the entire structure of the parasympathetic ganglia system. So the target tissues include the pupil and the ciliary body, the submandibular and the sublingual glands, the lacrimal gland and the parotid gland. That's all one needs to remember. There are secretomotor functions of the parasympathetics in the head and neck, and these are to the pupil and ciliary body, the submandibular and sublingual glands, the lacrimal gland and the parotid gland. Now each target tissue obviously has its own ganglion. So if we go up the system, we write on the bottom of the page four target tissues in four columns, as I've described them, then leave some space above and just write the ganglion. So if it's the eye, it's the ciliary ganglion. If it's the submandibular and sublingual glands, it is the submandibular ganglion. If it is the lacrimal gland, it is the pterygopalatine ganglion. And if it's the parotid gland, it's the otic ganglion. So we should have uh, two, uh, let's say four columns, but two rows already set up, the ganglion and target tissue. It's as simple as that. Now, for each ganglion, if we go a little bit further up on the page, there is then a nucleus, okay? And so this is going to be for the ocular motor, near the Edinger-Vestphal nucleus. For the submandibular and lacrimal glands, it is the superior salivatory nucleus. And for the parotid gland, it's the inferior salivatory nucleus. So we've filled in the nucleus in the top end of our uh, columns. In the middle is the ganglion for each. And then below is the target tissue for each. And that means that each nucleus conveys to its individual ganglion via a pre-ganglionic CNS pathway. 
and that is directed by a specific cranial nerve or part of a cranial nerve. And so there's an extra line, which would be the preganglionic pathway between the nucleus and the ganglion. And then below the ganglion, between the ganglion and the target tissue, is then a postganglionic pathway, which is distributed to its relevant target by hitchhiking along the nearest available branch of the trigeminal nerve. That is the entire structure of the parasympathetic nervous system of the head and neck. Now, the preganglionic pathway of the ciliary ganglion is distributed via the oculomotor nerve. That of the submandibular ganglion is brought in via the corda tympani branch of the facial nerve. Um, that for the lacrimal gland is brought in by the greater petrosal branch of the facial nerve, and that for the parotid gland is brought in by the lesser petrosal branch of the glossopharyngeal nerve. So we can fill in all of the preganglionic connections. We then need to fill in the postganglionic layers. The postganglionic pathway for the ciliary ganglion is via the short ciliary nerves to the sphincter pupilla and the ciliary body of the iris. The effect here is pupilloconstriction and ciliary muscle accommodation. That's what the target tissues there do. The pathway for the postganglionic fibres of the submandibular and sublingual glands is brought in by the lingual nerve, that is V3, or mandibular division of the trigeminal. The postganglionic fibres for the lacrimal gland, a little bit more complicated, and they arrive via the zygomaticofacial nerve, or V2, after they've synapsed in the pterygopalatine ganglion, which in the inner orbit then jump across to get to the lacrimal part uh, of V1. So it's most laterally made its way through the superorbital fissure from the middle cranial fossa through to the orbit. And that's all the superorbital fissure is. It's just a mechanism for things to move from the middle cranial fossa to the orbit. And then the postganglionic pathway to the parotid gland is also via V3, but through the distribution along the parotid and the side of the face uh, and is distributed via the auriculotemporal nerve. So we've filled in the preganglionic and postganglionic bits. Target tissues, starting with that, what are the ganglia, what are the nuclei, then there's a preganglionic pathway, and a which is a cranial nerve, and then a postganglionic pathway, which is monitoring along part of a trigeminal nerve. The embryological development of the face, by the way, is such that the orbit and vertex is innervated by V1, the middle third of the face, by V2, and the side of the chin and the neck are then pulled up against the temple as V3, which is how this particular auriculotemporal nerve forms, so that the parotid territory, the submandibular territories, are actually part of V3. And they're pulled up, in a sense, it's pulled up like a face, like pulling a sock or a hoodie over a face in that particular way. So in summary, the order for these parasympathetic ganglia are, just again to remind everyone, nucleus, preganglionic cranial nerve pathway, ganglion, postganglionic hitchhiking trigeminal pathway to target organ or tissue. And I've included some images for that, but it's basically a very simple table to assess it. We need to talk a little bit about each of these ganglia because they've each got, uh, despite having the basic structure that I've described, some unique features. So firstly, the ciliary ganglion. That's about the size of a pinhead lying between the optic nerve and typically the lateral rectus muscle. Uh, 
there is a long slender filament from cell bodies in the trigeminal ganglion via V1 in the nasociliary nerve with the fibres to the eyeball. The SNS root comes, that's the sympathetic root of this, comes from the superior cervical ganglion via branches of the internal carotid nerve entering the ophthalmic nerve from the uh, entering the um, ophthalmic nerve from the internal carotid plexus to supply the dilator pupillae and the blood vessels within the short ciliary nerves. The ocular motor has a short stout branch from the nerve to the inferior oblique muscle and it enters the ganglion with its parasympathetic preganglionic fibres from three, the ocular motor for synapse within the ganglion, and that's part of the inferior division of the ocular motor which has come in in order via the superior orbital fissure, as we've said before. That's remembered as the typical mnemonic, uh, forgive me, but lazy French tarts sit naked in anticipation. That is mainly from lateral to medial, is lacrimal uh, for the lazy French, is uh, frontal. Tarts is trochlear nerve. Sit is the superior division of the oculomotor nerve. Naked is nasociliary I in is the inferior division of the oculomotor nerve, and the abducent is anticipation. And in the schema, therefore, the most medial structure, which is the abducent, travels the most lateral and circuitous course, and is subject in a rather non-specific way to the effects of raised intracranial pressure, and the effect might be for a lateral rectus palsy to function as a so-called non-localising or non-lateralising sign of raised intracranial pressure. Uh, these postganglionic cells pass uh, with the short ciliary nerves after they've gone through the ciliary ganglion to the eyeball, and they innovate, as I've said, the sphincter pupillae muscle and also the ciliary muscle. And the ciliary muscle reduces the tension in the suspensory ligament of the lens. It makes the lens fatter, and therefore it is able to accommodate. As an aside, I include a reference by Kozic, the Edinger-Westphal nucleus, for those who are interested in it, and historical, structural and functional perspective on a dichotomous terminology. That's from the Journal of Comparative Neurology in June 2011. Uh, the EW nucleus is effectively, just for interest, uh, we don't talk about it much, but it's two basic structures in the midbrain one which is part of the ocular motor complex, that is the preganglionic parasympathetic motor neuron input to the ciliary ganglion, and the other actually controls a range of stress-related peptidergic functions. So there's a bit more information if people want to read about it. The only other thing I'd want to mention is just a little bit about the pupillary reflex. I don't want to talk about differences in pupils because that's a more complex issue. But we do need to understand the anatomy of the pupillary reflex here, which is a little bit more complicated, before going into the um, other ganglia. I, there is a, an additional diagram which I'll include on this, um, uh, the nature of the pupillary reflex. But it is a reflex which involves adaptation to vision at various levels of illumination with constriction of the pupil, that is meiosis, directly and consensually. And this is a little bit more complex than we usually go into. The physiology and anatomy is complex. The pupillary light reflex neural pathway has an afferent limb and two efferent limbs. The afferent has nerve fibres in the optic nerve with efferent fibres running along the oculomotor nerve. So it's a 2-3 reflex. 
The afferent limb is in the retina, obviously, the optic nerve, and then it uh, is part of the so-called pretectal nucleus in the midbrain at the level of the superior colliculus. The efferent limb is the pupillary motor output from the pretectal nucleus to the ciliary sphincter muscle of the iris. So the pretectal nucleus actually projects both crossed and uncrossed fibres to both the ipsilateral and the contralateral Edinger-Westphal nuclei nearby. So the first sign is coming through the optic nerve is in the pretectal nucleus, which is then bilaterally represented to the Edinger-Westphal nucleus. Then each of these Edinger-Westphal nuclei then has, as we've said before, its preganglionic parasympathetic fibres exiting via three, the ocular motor nerve, and the ciliary ganglion. The contralateral efferent limb obviously results in a consensual reaction. So there are a number of abnormalities here. I don't want to go into them in great detail. This is not the forum for that. But abnormalities may occur with optic nerve damage, losing the direct reflex to some extent and the consensual reflex on the stimulated side. With uh, the ocular motor nerve, the direct reflex with a problem with that will be lost on the affected side, but the efferent limb on the contralateral side will persist, as you'd expect, because one third nerve is affected and one is not. And if the contralateral eye is stimulated, the contralateral efferent reflex will be lost. A person may also have an abnormal left direct reflex and an abnormal right consensual reflex, with a normal left consensual and a normal right direct, to produce a so-called Marcus Gunn pupil. And for that, a lesion anywhere can occur along segment one. That's the left afferent limb. Could produce this, including something affecting the left retina or the left optic nerve, the left pretectal nucleus. Such example, for example, uh, for example, of a segment one pathology could include a left optic neuritis, detachment of the left retina, an isolated small stroke involving the left pretectal nucleus. So it's dissection a little bit of this complex pupillary reflex and whether or not direct or consensual reflexes are affected that define, for example, the diagnosis of typical or atypical optic neuritis. Now, I want to continue with the remainder of the um, parasympathetic uh, ganglia. So the second one we want to talk about is the pterygopalatine ganglion. And that's a small pyramidal ganglion lies within the pterygopalatine fossa, which is a deep extension of the fissure running in the depth of the face between the lateral pterygoid plate and the maxillary tuberosity, the so-called pterygomaxillary fissure. If you take a skull, you can see the lateral pterygoid plate and a depth around the back of the maxilla, and that area is the pterygomaxillary fissure, and that's where the maxillary artery and veins enter the depth of the face. But if one were to rush a, run a brush through that deeply, one gets into the so-called pterygopalatine fossa. I have a separate um, um, audio podcast. I think it's number seven on the infratemporal, temporal and pterygopalatine fossae. And so this will appear a little bit later, uh, talking particularly about the boundaries, the sort of t thinking of it as a corridor, the entry and exit um, uh, doors of this corridor. So it's discussed in much greater detail. Nevertheless, in the interim time, um, the pterygopalatine ganglion lies near the sphenopalatine foramen, which leads to the nose, 
and is surrounded by small branches of the maxillary artery. It is suspended from the inferior aspect of the maxillary nerve, that is V2, as it runs in the roof of the pterygopalatine fossa from the territory of the foramen rotundum in the middle cranial fossa. So in these ganglionic branches, sensory, that is V2 fibres, pass directly through as a relay, as we've said before. The unusual feature of this ganglion, as I've said, each little ganglion has its own little unusual feature. The unusual feature of this ganglion is that the autonomic nerve supply is separately divided as a sympathetic root, that's part of the internal carotid nerve that leaves it and is specifically called the deep petrosal nerve. That then combines with the parasympathetic preganglionic nerve, which has been derived from the seventh cranial nerve before it enters the internal acoustic meatus and which has run across the middle cranial fossa as the greater petrosal nerve. That's part of the nervous intermedius. So both the deep petrosal nerve, sympathetic bit, and the greater petrosal nerve, parasympathetic bit, unite in this pterygopalatine fossa to run through really the base of the sphenoid bone via a small foramen which sits in the roof of the pterygopalatine fossa, which is the pterygoid canal or in some texts it's actually called Vidian's nerve or Vidian's canal. And the combined nerve, sympathetic and parasympathetic, preganglionic autonomic nervous system layout for this ganglion is then sometimes known as Vidian's nerve or the nerve of the pterygoid canal. The specific postganglionic fibres supply not only the lacrimal gland, that is V2 and then jumping across to V1 via the lateral nerve in the way we have described it, but also glands that relay into the nose, so via the sphenopalatine foramen, the palate via the descending palatal, uh, palatal canal, moving forwards to the hard palate as the greater palatine nerves, or backwards to the soft palate, where everything is called the lesser palatine nerves. And then there's an additional connection to the pharynx backwards via a small canal called the palatovaginal canal in the sphenoid. And then the rest of the thing terminates in the middle third of the face, as the infraorbital nerve. So the point about this pterygopalatine is that it is now innovating the structures of the middle third of the face in a pseudomotor fashion for parasympathetic activity, but it has a relay coming through of sympathetic activity and also sensory, that is trigeminal components as well. So the sensory bit is running in the roof of the pterygopalatine fossa via the foramen rotundum. That's V2. The sympathetic component, as we've said, comes through with a parasympathetic component via the vidian nerve. So that's coming through the pterygoid canal. And then the vessels are making their way through the depth of the face at the so-called pterygomaxillary fissure, the arteries, bits of the maxillary artery going in, bits of the maxillary vein going out. So all of this is then a relay station for vessels, sensory function, autonomic nervous function, which is then... After its synapse, that's the parasympathetic bit synapsing in the pterygopalatine ganglion, then relayed out through various particular foramina, terminating as the infraorbital nerve around the middle third of the face and being part of the maxillary sinus and so forth, but then having components that join to the nose, the pharynx and the palate. They join out through the nose, usually through the so-called sphenopalatine foramen, They'll come out through the pharynx via a palatovaginal canal and they'll join the palate via a descending palatine canal. They move forwards into the hard palate. Everything there is called greater palatine. 
They move backwards into the soft palate. Everything is called lesser palate. And I've just gone through the whole thing, in a sense, uh, again. To reiterate these, relays go to the face, the pharynx, the palate, and nose, bringing with it vessels via the pterygomaxillary fissure, sensory fibres via the foramen rotundum, and autonomics through the vidian canal. Now, a few of the fibres included are also a little bit more complicated because they're taste fibres from the palate, which can run in the greater petrosal nerve with their pseudo cell bodies in the geniculate ganglion of the facial nerve as it turns in the middle ear. And these relay centrally, just for interest, in the gustatory nucleus in the midbrain, and they relay from this specialised branchial musculature, a cell bodies, which we call special visceral afferents. There is a separate podcast uh, later on when we're talking about the cranial nerves that we talk about the cellular organisation and relay within the brain stem. So I'll specifically address what types of cells these are. But just as an example, these are coming from the viscera, the branchial viscera, and they are, in taste fibres, special visceral afferents, which relay in the so-called gustatory or solitary nucleus in the uh, brain stem. The pterygopalatine ganglion has some specific branches also. It includes the orbital branches, usually two or three filaments, which enter the orbit via the inferior orbital fissure to be sensory to the orbital periosteum and is the secretory component, as we've said, of the lacrimal gland. And there are also the so-called nasopalatine nerve and the posterior nasal nerves, which is sometimes called the lateral superior posterior nasal, which pass through the sphenopalatine foramen to the mucous membrane of the nose. There is a separate podcast uh, on the nasopharynx and the nose and on the scepter, so that's uh, quite a separate one as well. The pharyngeal branch, um, as already stated, lies here, passing posteriorly through a little canal called the palatovaginal canal. It's near the vaginal process of the palatine bone, and um, it goes um, uh, really... Uh, to the region of the mucous membrane of the sphenoid sinus and to the roof of the pharynx. The small terminal branches of the maxillary artery at this level follow the components of the pterygopalatine ganglion and they are infraorbital, posterior superior alveolar, greater and lesser palatine, nasopalatine, pharyngeal and the so-called artery of the pterygoid canal. So we're here at the so-called third or pterygopalatine portion of the maxillary artery, and so therefore it's got to have branches for all of those that correspond with the nerve. And as I've said, these are particularly around the upper part of the posterior superior alveolar margin, so they include the posterior superior alveolar arteries, the greater and lesser palatine arteries, nasopalatine arteries, pharyngeal arteries, and the artery of the pterygoid canal, which typically supplies that uh, so-called vidian nerve. There is also a separate little podcast talking about the maxillary artery within that infratemporal pterygopalatine fossa one, which I think is number seven. Um, the names and functions of all of these arteries and nerves are therefore similar. If the sphenoid is assessed separately as a bone from the back, just to come back to that, the foramen rotundum can be readily located between the central body and the greater wing. That's in the roof of the pterygopalatine fossa. Behind this is a horizontal plate 
which juts inferiorly and laterally, and that houses the pterygoid or vidian canal. And that area sits just above the fibrous floor that fills in the area of the foramen lacerum. The pterygoid canal lies in the precise plane as the medial pterygoid plate. And just for those interested, the nerve was named after Vidius Vidius, or Guido Guido, 1509 to 1569, who discovered it on his dissections of the sphenoid sinus. That's really all one needs to know about the pterygopalatine ganglion. Its unusual feature is the combination of the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems within its uh, autonomic root. The submandibular ganglion is the next one. Uh, that's a small ganglion, lies on the hyoglossus muscle, suspended by two attachments typically to the lingual nerve, with the posterior located one carrying usually the preganglionic cauda tympani fibres and the anterior one carrying the postganglionic axons of the ganglion cells for distribution via the lingual nerve to the submandibular and the sublingual glands, as well as to numerous unnamed glands in the anterior two-thirds of the tongue and to the mucous membrane of the mouth. The ganglion is also a little relay station for postganglionic sympathetic fibres, which run along the facial and the lingual arteries, arising after synapse in the superior cervical ganglion, just as one would expect. So there is actually a little sympathetic root. And the central nucleus of this ganglion, as we've said, is the superior salivatory nucleus in the midbrain, the sensory root cell bodies lie, as we know, in the trigeminal. And usually when you're removing, for example, the submandibular glands, uh, then as you are pulling forwards the posterior limit of the mylohyoid, you reveal the hyoglossus. And what you need to do is usually separate uh, the two little rootlets of the submandibular ganglion from the lingual nerve. This is best done using tiny little hemoclips uh, they can be left in place. And then once the submandibular ganglion is then separated by these two roots, usually a pre- and post-ganglionic kind of rootlet, the lingual nerve springs out of the way on the hyoglossus. And uh, one is left really only with the deep part of the gland attached only by the submandibular duct. And uh, uh, so a knowledge really specifically of the anatomy of the submandibular ganglion means that we can appreciate a little bit more about the operative surgery of excision of the submandibular gland. The final um, ganglion is then the otic ganglion. And that small ganglion is located just below the skull base, lying between the mandibular nerve, that is V3, uh, as it is exited from the foramen of Ali at the base of the skull, and the origins of the tensor pilati, which arises actually from a small area at the root of the medial pterygoid lamina, which is called the scaphoid area. Now, the ganglion is actually adjacent to the nerve to the medial pterygoid muscle. And again, like the other ganglia, a number of fibres relay through it, but it's only the synapse point, obviously, for the preganglionic parasympathetic fibres, which reach it via the lesser petrosal nerve uh, a branch of the glossopharyngeal nerve. The postganglionic pathway, as we know, is via the auriculotemporal nerve V3 in the way that it's pulled up along the side of the face and the temple. And the nerve fibres traversing this ganglion unusually include, this is its difference, 
some motor fibres to the tensor palati and the tensor tympani muscles, which are both derived from the nerve to the medial pterygoid muscle. So there is, in this particular ganglion, a motor root. There's nothing synapsing in there. It's just being transmitted, and it transmits via the nerves to the medial pterygoid the uh, innervation, the motor innervation, to the tensor muscles. That's the way we remember it, tensor palati and tensor uh, tympani. And um, again, as I've said, like other ganglia, a number of fibres relay through it, but it's the only the synapse point for the preganglionic parasympathetic fibres uh, of nine. Now, sympathetic fibres come through from the plexus, in this case, of the middle meningeal artery. That's the sympathetic root of this uh, otic ganglion. So they come from the plexus on the middle meningeal artery, but they're coming from the superior cervical ganglion. And it's nearby exiting, obviously, at the foramen spinosum. So it's right there between the foramen spinosum and the foramen of Ali. Sensory fibres arise from the glossopharyngeal and from five, and as really distributants from other branches of the ganglion. The cell nucleus of this ganglion, as we've said before, lies in the inferior salivary nucleus near the origin of the ninth nerve and its tympanic branch to the tympanic plexus. So in summary, the unusual feature of this ganglion is its somatic motor root from the nerve to the medial pterygoid muscle. Uh, one final area to consider, although it is discussed uh, in a subsequent uh, head and neck podcast on the cranial nerves and their function, I think it's the next one, is the orientation of the sensory and motor columns in the brain stem. And we'll go through this again. But I just wanted to mention the sensory columns uh, here. These include GSA, which is the general systemic afferents, and they convey pain, temperature, touch, and proprioception. Their more detailed synapse in the brain stem is discussed elsewhere, but suffice to say that this is largely conveyed through the spinal nucleus of the trigeminal. The group includes SSAs, which are the special somatic afferents, which include vision, and the vestibulocochlear or eighth apparatus, essentially very specialist senses. It's not a particularly good term uh, now, but all branchial arches are called in the system viscera, and these include the muscles of mastication and those of facial expression. And so therefore the special visceral afferents, they are taste fibres, which we've mentioned. The other cell type in this group is the general visceral afferents, which relay just below the taste fibres of the tractor solitarius or the um, gustatory nucleus, and they relay in the cardiorespiratory centres, and these visceral afferents bring in the reflexes that are part of the carotid and aortic sinuses and bodies. And this area is for crowded relay, actually, so that the taste fibres actually run rostrally to the gustatory nucleus, the cardiorespiratory fibres run in the distal part of the same nucleus. Uh, the other way to think about it is to include then uh, motor columns in the brainstem, and these include the GSE or general systemic efferents, which go to the voluntary muscles that are derived from the somites, and they include the tongue and the extraocular muscles as the twelfth nerve, the third 
cranial nerve, ocular motor, the fourth cranial nerve, trochlea, and the sixth nerve, the abducent. So these are specialised muscles. There are the GVE, which are general visceral efferents, and they're the autonomic outflow of the system, parasympathetic nervous system, uh, which we've been describing to smooth and cardiac muscle. Uh, and so that's part of the parasympathetic ganglia that we're talking about. Those are called general visceral efferents. And uh, for want of a better term, as I've said, there's also special uh, or, um, or systemic, rather, visceral efferents, which are the motor supply to the muscles which are derived from pharyngeal arch mesoderm, the so-called branchial arches. And these, as I've said before, include muscles of mastication and the muscles of facial expression. So one way of looking at these very specialist cells and the way that they relay back with specific functions from the head and neck is to think of them as coming into sensory columns or coming into motor columns, and each of these cells are different. Another way I think of thinking of it is to divide the cell bodies into general and special functions, and then within each of these are afferent and efferent cell types. That's a bit of an easier way to look at it. On the vertical axis of a small contingency table so created is then to divide these into either visceral, as we've defined them, not a great term, but the branchial musculature, which are visceral, and somatic. And I've put some, uh, I will put a little table on the Facebook site of relevance for this. And so that then leads obviously to GVA and GVE cells, general visceral afferent and general visceral efferent cells, SVA and SVE cells, special visceral afferents and special visceral efferents. And then below that, there would be GSA and GSE general somatic afferents and efferents, and SSA, which are special uh, somatic afferents. There are no SSE cell body types. And if you think of them in that way and create a contingency table, you can then figure out what each of these uh, is. I've got a final reiteration bit here, which one can include. Uh, I don't know whether it'll be useful here, but in the GVA, this includes the carotid and aortic sinuses and chemoreceptors, which synapse in the cardiorespiratory centre, just below, as I've said, the gustatory or solitary tract nucleus. The GVEs are all the parasympathetic outflows, and that includes parasympathetic outflow in the midbrain and the pons. The Eddinger-Westphal nucleus, the superior and inferior salivary nuclei, the dorsal autonomic nucleus. On the special side... The SVA are the taste fibres for the gustatory nucleus. The SVEs go to the fifth cranial nerve, the seventh cranial nerve, and the nucleus ambiguous, which is a group of large motor neurons located deep in the medullary reticular formation that contain the cell bodies innervating the muscles of the soft palate, pharynx and larynx, and which are concerned with speech and swallowing coordination. So these are different ways in a sense of conceptualising the sensory and motor components of the brain stem. On the somatic side, we have the GSA, which are the sensory nuclei of the trigeminal and the dorsal column nuclei. The GSE, which are the specialised motor cells for the ocular motor, trochlear, abducent and hypoglossal nerve. And the only other category is then a specialised somatic afferent for very specialised afferent function, which includes obviously the optic nerve and eight, the vestibulocochlear nerve. So that's it. Um, I think we're then moving on to 
Uh, we're then going to move on to the um, the skull, uh, which is osteology and foramenae, and include uh, the uh, skull.